Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Good morning, church. You know, my wife and I were very kindly gifted uh, Blue Jays tickets to tomorrow's game against the Yankees, and I'm very much looking forward to being there. I'm going to cheer the Jays, I'm going to boo the Yankees, there may be some heckling of some calls if that's required, which often it is. Try not to embarrass my wife. And I will enjoy that immensely, but there is no company I enjoy greater and more than this one. And no sound I enjoy more than the sound of God's people singing his praises and encouraging one another in these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So it's a joy to be together this morning. Thank you for leading us. It's a joy to serve alongside brother pastors with their convictions and shepherd hearts that they have and all of the elders and members here together. What a great gift it is to be able to count ourselves among the family of God by God's grace as a gift through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we do continue in our worship with this morning's sermon, I want you to picture in your mind with me at the outset uh, an hourglass, uh, a sand timer, particularly the shape of it. It's wide at the top where all of the sand sits. It narrows in the middle where the sand passes through, and then it opens up again at the bottom where all the sand collects. And as I think about the shape of an hourglass, I think of that as an illustration of the uh, visual of the shape that the persecution of God's covenant people has taken over the millennia of human history. Prior to the coming of Christ, the Israelites, the Hebrews, God's covenant people, they always had enemies. We can read about this in both Scripture, we can read about this in history, that there were all of these attacks coming just broadly against God's covenant people. And then, as we work our way through the scriptures and God's redemptive history, we come to the person of Christ, to his coming, and we see that the attack of the kingdom of darkness, which is behind the system of this world, it zeroes in on the person of Jesus, just as the hourglass does in the middle. From his infancy, a king tried to end his life. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was opposed with all the plots and schemes ending in his crucifixion, as we heard about in Acts chapter 4. And ever since his resurrection and his ascension, just as he warned us, those attacks, thinking of the shape of that hourglass, have broadened out again. And they come against and engulf all of the new covenant community, such that today the most persecuted group on the planet are Christians, with many believers killed every year, many imprisoned, many meeting in secret even today. Many kicked to the curb of society in the countries where they live, which seems increasingly the case here in our own. Beginning from the death of Abel and encompassing all of God's covenant community to the last martyr who will die, this conflict has raged and can be traced in every century of human history, including to the present day. I want to read to you a paragraph that I found stirring this week in my own preparation for this morning from that Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. This is what he writes. Whenever there has been a great persecution raised against the Christian church, God has overruled it 
The early persecutions in Judea promoted the spread of the gospel. After the death of Stephen, the disciples were all scattered abroad preaching the word. When Herod stretched forth his hand to vex the church and killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, what came of it? Luke tells us, he said, the word of God grew and multiplied. Fast forward a little bit to those terrible and bloody persecutions under the Roman emperor. He says, by no means they stay the progress of the gospel, but strangely enough, seem to press forward for the crown of martyrdom. The church probably never increased at a greater ratio than as when her foes were most fierce to assail and most resolute to destroy her. You fast forward some more. The Reformation never went on so prosperously as when it was most vigorously opposed. You shall find in any individual church that wherever evil men have conspired together and a storm of opposition has burst forth against the saints, the heart of the Lord has been moved with compassion. And so he says, be patient then, my brothers and sisters. Amidst the persecutions or trials you may be called upon to bear and be thankful that they are so often overruled for the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel, and for the honor of Christ. Now, the reason this has been true throughout history is because God's people are in God's hands and in God's time, God's purposes will prevail. No matter how hard kings and rulers and tyrants have tried, God's people cannot be destroyed. That doesn't mean the absence of suffering, but it does mean the absence of ultimate defeat. Earthly rulers will never destroy the people of God, ever. It cannot be done. And that is what our sermon text teaches us this morning as we look back to that top portion of that hourglass. As we go back prior to the coming of Christ, which sets the stage of all redemptive history to follow. And we will see there that evil rulers will never destroy the people of God. And we're given two assurances in the passage that this is true in what we're about to read. Assurances that we need to hear. Because I don't know who, where everyone stands who is in this room this morning. You may be here this morning as someone who is aligned against God and against his anointed king, Jesus. Christ taught that if we are not for him, we're against him. So this morning will be an opportunity for you, if you're not a Christian, to seriously ask, whose side am I on? And if we're not for Christ, the call is to change allegiances, to change masters, to bow to him, to confess him as Lord. And for those of us who have, we need to hear these two assurances because the direction we're trending is one where life becomes more difficult for Christ followers in our country. Or the Lord might be calling us to go to a place where it is dangerous to be a Christ follower. And this will be true for our children and for our grandchildren also. Without assurance that evil rulers will never destroy God's people, we may well buckle under the pressure that comes. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 22. And if you're thinking, great Mother's Day message, there's two women that feature beautifully in our text, which was not by design, but by God's providence. And we will come to them as we read and work our way through the text. But turn to Exodus chapter 1. Verses 8 to 22, it's page 45 on the Pew Bibles. I encourage you to use those and take one again if you do not own a copy of God's Word for yourself. Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to read beginning in verse 8 after I briefly pray, which I invite you to do with me. 
Lord, your word tells us that all flesh is like grass. The glory of men and women is like the flowers of the field. They're there, and then they're gone. But your word, O Lord, endures forever. And I pray that you would sanctify us by your word, which is truth, as we hear it read and preached. We pray that it would be done so and heard with the power, in the power of your Holy Spirit, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and all of God's people say, amen. So Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Brothers and sisters, this again is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, just to stretch your memory back to a couple of weeks ago as we began in Exodus, we reviewed the history of how God's covenant family ended up going down into Egypt. And remember, this is all the theater of God's glory. We saw in the first seven verses that Yahweh positions his people to reveal his identity. We saw that Yahweh establishes his covenant people to reveal who he is. They went down into Egypt, and they became a nation. We saw that Yahweh blesses his covenant people to reveal his identity. They became numerous. That's the problem in the text this morning. And this sets the stage for everyone to know that Yahweh is God. In Exodus, Yahweh redeems his people by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He makes them a kingdom of priests through covenant, and he prepares them for his glorious presence. And in the greater Exodus, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord does the same. He redeems a people, he makes them a kingdom of priests, and he prepares them for his glorious presence. 
Now, back in the first Exodus, that Old Testament salvation paradigm, the set of verses we just read gives us the context for how circumstances became so horrendous for the Hebrews in Egypt. And as we work through them, I want you to remember this is not merely political. This is not racial. This is not social. This is not cultural. It's not primarily about the Egyptians versus the Jews. It's not primarily about oppressed versus oppressor. The dynamics that unfold here are primarily spiritual in nature. The Jews, the Hebrews, are the seed of the woman. Pharaoh and the Egyptians, we will see, are of the seed of the serpent. That's the reason for the conflict. This is an expression of Genesis 3.15. There's enmity between these two kinds of offspring. So Pharaoh isn't just an earthly ruler. He isn't just an earthly tyrant. He's a serpentine tyrant. He goes to war against God's people, which plays out in the tactics of this unnamed Pharaoh who tried to do what cannot be done, destroy the people of God, which ultimately was an attempt to thwart the very purposes of God. Pharaoh's opposition to the Jews was opposition to God's purposes to bring a blessing to all nations through this one nation. And as we will be assured, the tactics of these earthly, serpentine rulers, tyrants, cannot, will not ever destroy the people of God. The first assurance of this comes to to us in response to Pharaoh's first tactic. While Pharaoh seeks to oppress God fulfills his covenant promises. That's the first assurance that earthly rulers will never destroy God's covenant people. God always fulfills his covenant promises. Look at verse 8 as we trace the trajectory of Pharaoh's oppressive tactic. It says there, There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Right out of the gate, And the reign of this new king is a disregard for the Hebrew people and their contribution to the nation of Egypt. One of our life groups asked this week, they read the passage before, they send in questions. They ask, how could this Pharaoh not have known about Joseph and what he did? Well, it is possible that over the 400 years the Hebrews were in Egypt, the story of Joseph was forgotten. But given his contribution, that doesn't seem likely. But there's a clue in the text that helps us understand what is going on here. This new king not knowing may not mean he didn't know the facts. It may not mean he didn't know the history. It means he didn't care. I quote, the implication of did not know Joseph is therefore refused to honor any prior arrangements protecting the status of the Israelites. He might well have known everything about Joseph, but not in any meaningful or intimate way. He just didn't care. If this is the case, this is a hostile uh, posture towards the Hebrews that results in everything that follows. Look at verse 9 as this oppression tactic unfolds all the more. He says to his people, behold, the people of Israel. And I just want to pause there. I want you to note, especially if you're marking in your Exodus journals, Note the use of his people and the people of Israel. There's another his people in verse 22 as well, and we see at the outset these two peoples are being pitted against one another. 
What do we call this today? Identity politics. Driving a wedge between two different groups within a society, dismissing one group over and against all the others. Now, in response to this, Yahweh is going to to deliver those he calls my people. They're my people, he says in 3.7. They're my people in verse 1. They're my people in 7.4. They're my people in 8.1 and 20 and 21 and 22 and 23, and we could go on. This is a conflict between Pharaoh and his people and Yahweh who says, these are my people. And keep reading in the text. He said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly or wisely with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And to best understand Pharaoh's concern here, I was helped to see that the last phrase, escape from the land, is an idiom, meaning take possession of the land. He's worried that they're going to take over, that the numerous Israelites are just going to keep multiplying and taking up real estate, and eventually they're going to just take over the whole kingdom of Egypt. And he's echoing the project managers of the Tower of Babel, come let us. He's far more interested in retaining and building his own legacy than God's beautiful purpose is to bring a blessing even to the Egyptians through his own people. And note the disturbing subtlety of what Pharaoh does here to ramp up the oppression of God's covenant people. He instills first a fear in his own. Fear is a powerful motivator. There are too many of them, he says. They're, They're too mighty, he says. What if war breaks out? And they join their enemies, our enemies. But there isn't any war, is there? This is just hypothetical. And the Hebrews haven't even done anything to the Egyptians either. But Pharaoh fearmongers and begins to blame the Hebrews for something that hasn't and may not even happen. And this is oppression 101. We've seen this not too long ago. Find something to blame God's people for, even if they haven't done anything, even if it's a mere possibility. As one writer observes, I quote, the king's action is a classic example of using an alleged threat as an occasion for one's own wickedness. The tactic works amongst Pharaoh's advisors. This becomes public policy. Someone points out maybe even Moses grew up hearing about this public policy as he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. And it's put into place in verse 11. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And maybe I'll do an aside sometime on on, on some of the history of this. I don't want to weave too much in here because not everyone is interested in in that as much as I may be. But enough to say for now, this is a crushing load for the Hebrew people. At the beginning of Exodus, they are enslaved to build these garrison cities for the Egyptian kingdom. In Hebrew, the term is mishkanot. And I tell you that not to make me look smart, because I'm not as smart as maybe you think I am, or maybe the cat's out of the bag and you know I'm not. But I tell you this because there's a play on words here in the book. Here they build mishkanot. But in 25 to 40, they will build a mishkan, a tabernacle. They are involved in the Mishkanot building project of the Egyptians for now, but they will soon be involved in the Mishkan building project of God soon. 
Now, as for the location of these two cities, Ram-Pithon and, Ram and Ramses, these cities would have caused separation among Hebrew families and lands and flocks. They would have had to have gone away in this forced labor. So they have to go away from the land of Goshen, and this would have caused families to eventually disintegrate in Pharaoh's understanding. If they're not home, they can't tend their crops. If they're not home, they can't tear, take care of their flocks. This was the shrewdness of Pharaoh's plan. Destroy the family and the heritage of the Hebrews while establishing outpost cities for his own kingdom. That's his goal here. The tactic, however, fails royally, as we read in verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Pharaoh tries to stamp out God's covenant people by oppressing them, only to discover that this is an impossible task. Earthly rulers will never destroy God's covenant people. Serpent kings can never ruin the people of God. Why not? Because God fulfills his covenant promises. That's our first assurance, that at no time in history can anyone anywhere ever eradicate God's people. Think of all the promises to Abraham of how many descendants he would have. They'd be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the, the sand on the seashore. You'll have many descendants. Kings will come from you. Nations will come from you. He then extended those promises to Isaac and said the same, and to Jacob and said the same. And here we're finally beginning to see God keep his word. We fast forward a little bit to that lower part of the hourglass of persecution being directed to the new covenant community. And we read of Luke's constant uh, summary statement in the book of Acts. As he tried to repress and oppress the preaching of the gospel, Luke tells us all the time, all the way through, the word of God, what did that, what happened? It multiplied. It multiplied. The word of God spread. It multiplied. They couldn't stop it. And we have Jesus' words in, to the churches in the book of Revelation. Here's his words to the church in Smyrna. He says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about, is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God's people cannot be stamped out. Now, rather than realizing the futility of this in the time of the Exodus, rather than stopping in their tracks to consider, this doesn't seem to be working, perhaps it's because the God of the Hebrews is behind what's going on here. Instead of coming to that conclusion, no, they loathe the sons of Israel, and they double down on their oppression in verse 13. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service. That's why at Passover they would eat these bitter herbs as a, as a, a taste reminder of what it was like. They work in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field, and all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves, ruthless, bitter slaves. It's awful. And though God blesses them despite Pharaoh's oppressive tactics, the circumstances, they're dreadful. The Lord knows this. 
The Lord sees this. He is faithful to fulfill his promises amidst affliction. He's multiplied their descendants, but he said he'll give them a land, and he will do that also. He will rescue. He won't leave them here forever. He promised that all the way back in Genesis 15. But let's not overlook how difficult this situation is. Notice the repetition of work in those verses, which one commentator writes, depending on the context, can mean work, service, or labor. That's what it means here. But it can also mean worship, or obligation, or ministry, or effort, or accomplishment. He writes, I quote, At this point in the narrative, Israel was involuntarily having to serve, work for, live for, be under the control of Pharaoh. But later in Exodus, Moses will use the same word, work, to refer to Israel's desire to worship, live for, be under the control of Yahweh. You see, that Israel had a master was not the problem. The problem was the kind of master that they had. They needed a switch in masters, as we all do. A switch from the taskmaster of Satan and sin and death to the glorious service of the God who is light and life in whom we live and move and have our being. The oppression of this serpentine master of Satan and his kingdom, the kingdom of this world, it is enslaving, it is bitter, it is ruthless. And too many of us know all too well the promise of what seemed sweet and satisfying, only to know the taste of ashes in our mouth that made us sick through and through. If that's your experience, that's an indication that you're serving the wrong master, that you need a new one, one who offers an easy yoke and a light burden, one who offers rest from all your toil, one who invites you to come not before you clean yourself up, but to clean you up himself. Our suffering under the bondage of sin is what draws him to us. Jesus actually came to set us free. And in him, we are then to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ, no longer needing to submit ourselves to yokes of slavery that yield only sorrow and tears, as is depicted here in, under Pharaoh. So let Jesus be the shepherd and overseer of your soul. He is a good master, a gracious master, a generous master, a joyous master, a loving master, working for, worshiping, living under him is what you were made for. That's what Yahweh is going to redeem his people for. But here in Exodus chapter 1, they're not there yet. And in fact, the tactics of this earthly ruler, this serpent king, are actually going to ramp up before the rescue. But in this, we are given a second assurance that earthly rulers will never destroy God's covenant people. The first is that God fulfills his covenant promises. They're just multiplying like crazy. The second is that God always raises up those who fear him. God always raises up those who are faithful. In every generation, God's covenant people are under threat. And in every place, God's covenant people are under threat. But there's always a faithful remnant. 
earthly serpent rulers will never destroy God's covenant people because God always raises up those who fear him. And those who fear God are always obstacles to tyrants. They're always thorns in the side of those who would oppress God's people and try to stop his purposes in this world. Now, just as a little insider behind the pulpit view, here's the strategy I use to see that there are two sections to this morning's text. This is a type of writing in the Bible called narrative. And so there's something happens in verse 9. You have Pharaoh speaking, and he said to his people, and then things happen. And then in verse 15, we see Pharaoh speaks a second time. Then the king of Egypt said. So that's why I'm breaking it up into two sections here this morning. Is this, that uh, speech in the text is giving us a bit of a clue here. He's about to use a second tactic to eliminate God's people. And let's read what it says, picking up in verse 15. First, the king of Egypt speaks to his own people, his advisors. Now the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. This is highly disturbing. Oppression didn't work because God is fulfilling his covenant purposes, and there are even more Israelites. They're spreading out. They're taking our real estate. So Pharaoh ups the ante, and he sends a directive to Hebrews to commit what we would call today post-birth abortion of baby boys. Remember how our Lord describes Satan? The father of lies and a murderer from the beginning? This Pharaoh is of his father, the devil. You go home later and you Google images of Pharaoh headdresses in Egypt and just notice what's on the forehead. I won't tell you, you can, maybe you know, but you can go look for yourself. This is a horrendous decree. But praise God for raising up God-fearing woman, not only here, but all throughout the history of redemption. For now, I meet Shifra, which means something like dawn or fair, and meet Pua, which means fragrant or splendid or something like that. Likely, these women were overseers of all these ancient Hebrew midwives and doulas. They were likely older in age. They likely had no children, or they sort of they didn't have any children of their own, as verse 21 tells us. And as many know, this is probably the reason why they were midwives. They could travel at any hour of the day or night. They could stay for long hours to assist with labor because they didn't have their own families to attend to. And yet, in God's kindness and grace, they were as mothers to many. And in a new covenant setting, sisters, if the Lord has not designed to give you children, remember, remember what Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 10, that in this new covenant family, we have many mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. You can still be a mother to many as you sow the seeds of the gospel. And as you take younger women under your wing and teach them what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. That's what these women did for a season. They were mothers to mothers. They were mothers to these grandmothers, to the children that they bore. And they cannot comply with Pharaoh's command. 
The reason for this is stated clearly in verse 17 and 21. They feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. God was bigger in their eyes than Pharaoh. God was greater in their eyes than Pharaoh. Rather than looking at Pharaoh and their circumstances through the wrong end of the telescope, which would make God look small and puny and distant, they looked at God through the right end of the telescope, which would fill the vision of their eyes of faith with his greatness and his glory and his sovereign control and rule even over the kings of the earth. You see, when we reverse this is when we get ourselves and others into trouble. When God seems small to us and people or circumstances seem big to us, that's when we forget that even if we were called into the room with the rulers of this earth, that we live for an audience of one, and it is never the person who is right in front of us. And at the end of the day, this is what it all comes down to. Will we fear God or people? Will we believe the proverb, the fear of man sets a snare, but those who trust the Lord are safe, or will we not? Whenever we're pressured or commanded to do what God forbids, will we fear God or will we fear people? Whenever we're forbidden to do what God commands, will we fear God or will we fear people? That's really the crux of the matter. Give me any situation that our teens might face at school, that our college or university students will face on campus, that parents will face in raising their kids, that our teachers will face in the public system, that our employees will face in a woke culture. Give me any situation you can think of. And it all comes down to whether or not we will delight to honor and fear God above ourselves or others. Now, how we go about doing so requires wisdom and is not without challenges. So let's follow the footsteps for a little bit of these two God-fearing women, Shifra and Pua, and notice that they take the approach of quiet non-compliance. You know, they don't contact the local papyrus printing press, say that ten times fast, that's not in my notes, that just accidentally came out. They don't contact them and say, okay, I want you to distribute a flyer blitz to the, the, the kingdom of Egypt, we're not going to obey the king. It's not what they do, they hear the command, they just ignore it and carry on. Sometimes the best and wisest course in civil disobedience is just to do that. Ignore, fear God, carry on. But with the understanding that there will eventually be consequences. Eventually these heroic, God-fearing, pro-life women knew they'd need to answer to Pharaoh. As the babies are born... And as they grew up and the little boys start looking more like little boys and the little girls start looking more like little girls and Pharaoh's counting and sees this kind of the same number as it was before, well, their disobedience is going to be pretty public. And so it would seem that some time passes and in verse 18, the king calls the midwives and says to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. Now notice, as many point out, the twisting of Pharaoh's language here, they haven't done anything. But because it wasn't what the Pharaoh wanted, well, yeah, no, you've done something wrong. And as they're in his presence, and as they hear the question, they know that with just a nod of his head, 
their lives are over. Well, anticipating this, perhaps they had long spread word quietly, discreetly, adjusting the birthing culture among the Hebrew women over time so that when Pharaoh did call them to the carpet, they'd be able to give the answer they did in verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. And some people conclude that these women don't just lie. This is not just a, a small lie or a white lie. This is an absolute whopper of a lie that just ridicules Pharaoh. If the Hebrew women were so different from the Egyptian women in giving birth, why were there Hebrew midwives? That Shifra and Puah are standing before Pharaoh indicates that they do need them, but these midwives are saying, no, oh, they're just different. We're just different than the, the Egyptians. And if Pharaoh believes this, as one preacher writes, he's a few bricks short of a pyramid. Like, how could he even swallow this? This is crazy. In the history of interpretation, some have condemned these women for lying, concluding that God blessed them despite their failure to tell the truth. As even our best works are mingled with indwelling sin, there's certainly some truth to this. Yet I find that conclusion overly and unnecessarily harsh towards these women. Others, in trying to make sense of what happens here, have included that, you know, in such a situation... Those who are going to use the truth to such destructive, anti-God ends, they're undeserving of the truth. It's actually justifiable to lie in such a situation to preserve life. As every Bible college student or maybe every ethics student uh, knows, that they've all been asked to put themselves in the shoes of those hiding Jews from Nazis when soldiers come to the door. What are you going to say? And then we debate it. I don't like that debate because I've never been in that situation and I have no idea what I would do if I was in that situation. In support of refusing to give the truth to those who are such distorters of truth in life, some people point out 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 12. Listen very carefully to what we read there. The coming of the lawless one, another serpent tyrant, is by the activity of Satan, that's the great dragon himself, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Did you catch that? What will God do with those who refuse to love and believe the truth? He sends them a strong delusion. Enjoy puzzling over the intersection of God's holiness and sovereignty there this afternoon. Now that being so, some people say that if God does not give the truth to those who are so intent on distorting and twisting it, then we should not either. But there are difficulties that arise in our seeking to imitate our Heavenly Father in this way as we are not sovereign nor impeccably holy as He is. So there are challenges all around here. One commentator, another commentator, trying to resolve this ethical dilemma, wonders if the midwives meant that the Hebrew women were more lively, that is, more involved in giving birth on their own. They took matters into their own hands. Maybe even were instructed by the Hebrew midwives, go as long as you can. If you can give birth before we show up, you do, it. You do that. We'll come, but give birth first. And that would remove them from even being present to carry out Pharaoh's despicable order. That's a possibility. The difficulty with that verse, the verse is that the word vigorous only appears here in the Old Testament. 
This is the description of physical differences between Egyptian and Hebrew women or cultural practice between Egyptian and Hebrew women. It's difficult to tell. If Hebrew moms have indeed gone without midwives for birth and they only come after the baby arrives because of Pharaoh's decree, then these women did not lie. And that would make sense of God's honoring them and giving them families of their own, as verse 21 indicates. God has no word of indictment against these heroic, God-fearing women. Whatever we may conclude, the Lord honors these women as we should all God-fearing women. The writer goes without naming Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet at the time, and yet uses more words than is normal to introduce to us these women, Shifra and Pua. They're being set forth here as examples of what it looks like to fear God in such a difficult circumstance, trusting that he will indeed be faithful to his covenant promises no matter the immediate surroundings. And, O church, pray that God would raise up more of such God-fearing women right here in our midst. Sisters in Christ, we need you. Our homes need you, our churches need you, our culture needs you. May God raise up more of you than are already here. May God use you who do fear God to turn around and teach the next generation how to do that in an increasingly hostile environment. Woman that God would be pleased to honor and bless as he does these two. Women that are celebrated among God's people as we are glad to celebrate our sisters in Christ today. Women that are example setters for coming generations. Women that have been prayed for and discipled by God-fearing dads as these little girls grow up in our homes, men. Women that have been trained by God-fearing moms. Women that flourish in the context of lion-hearted, lamb-like servant leadership of husbands. Because when God raises up such ones, God-fearing women who would go toe-to-toe with God-hating tyrants, who would snuff out their lives, when that happens, God's purposes are advanced in this world. Look at 120 and how this mirrors 112. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Pharaoh can't shut this thing down. And because the midwives fear God, he blesses them. As we sang, he gave them families, which seems surprising, which indicates to us they were probably older and further along in life. And so we see Pharaoh's second tactic backfires because these earthly serpent rulers cannot destroy God's people no matter how hard they try. He tries to oppress, they multiply. He tries to kill them, they stand up to him, they multiply even more. God's purposes cannot be destroyed. He fulfills his covenant promises, assurance one. He raises up those who fear him, assurance two. But what about verse 22? What about when the gloves come truly off? Pharaoh speaks again, and there are no holds barred. Every son, he commands all his people. This is now tweeted to all of Egypt. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Why the boys? One writer says there are two good reasons. First, it was a convenient, oh, why throw them into the Nile, rather? There are two good reasons. First, it was convenient and clean. Everyone lived on the banks of the Nile. Anybody could do it. Just throw them in. And the Nile will just take them. No mess. 
Second, they shifted some of the blame because of the way I'm quoting here, because of the way the pantheistic Egyptians viewed the Nile as a god. If, if the Nile takes the babies, if God takes the babies, well, it's the gods. What are you going to do? Both reasons are horrid. Both showcase the true nature of the serpent-like, Satan-like king attempting to take out God's covenant people so that one could not arise to crush the head of the serpent. What's needed in response to verse 22 is a deliverer, a savior, a rescuer. And chapter 2 reveals who that is, one who would be raised up. And in delicious irony, he would be drawn out from the same Nile by Pharaoh's own daughter, raised under Pharaoh's own nose, and used to bring out the demise of Pharaoh and his army by drowning in water the same death sentence that Pharaoh announces should happen to the Hebrew boys. And just as these tactics, tactics wouldn't and didn't work here, they didn't work when Herod followed in Pharaoh's footsteps in Matthew 1 and 2. He tried for subtlety. He tried to be discreet with the Magi from the east. But when those tactics didn't work, the gloves came off, and he ordered that all the boys of Bethlehem be slain to try to take out the Christ. Revelation 12 paints the picture this way. I want to read to you some verses, and I'm going to conclude with a final story before we sing again. This is the picture that we have. Just listen as I read some of these verses, and think of that hourglass. Revelation 12 says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So think of the Old Testament covenant community here. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth to the Christ so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. There's all the ministry of Christ in Revelation 12, 5. And in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And then in verses 7 to 12, we read about the war in heaven that coincides with all, all of this, and Satan is cast down, and I'm picking up in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, again, the covenant community, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. This is all of history. And now that Christ has come, the persecution attention has now expanded back out again to this new covenant community. It started with the old covenant community, it zeroed in on Christ, and now it's the church. And yet, 
God will fulfill his covenant promises. Every promise in Christ is yes and amen. God will always raise up those who fear him. Will we be such ones in our generation? Will we be those, as Revelation 12, 11 describes, as those who have conquered our ancient enemy? How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, loving not our lives even to death knowing that God will always keep his promises and God will always raise up a God-fearing remnant. A powerful example of what this looks like comes from the life of a Dinka tribeswoman from Sudan named Mayan Enge. In the interest of honoring God-fearing woman today, I tell her story in her words. I was at the market in Abundao with my family, including our five children, when the raiders came. We were all taken captive. I was tied by my wrists in a chain to other captives. The journey to the north was very hard. We had to walk for about two solid days. We were given scarcely any food, and I and my children were beaten. I have a scar on my wrist from where I was bound. At the end of my journey, I was separated from my family and taken to a camp in Shetep. Those who ran the camp put constant pressure on me to convert to Islam. About twice a day, they would tell me we should all become Muslim and that it would be possible to live together as brothers, but that if we did not, they would kill us. On several occasions, this was accompanied by beatings. I was beaten severely with sticks. The upper bone in my arm now sticks out as a result of this beating. On another occasion during the night, they came to me again and told me that I must become a Muslim and that they would beat me if I did not. I cannot change my religion. I am a Christian and have committed myself to Christ. No one will ever destroy God's covenant people, for he always fulfills his promises, and he always raises up those who fear him. Will we be such ones?